The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. episode of The Wizard Files. Normally, this is the interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine, but this time around we're getting an exciting new perspective from a different angle. Recently, we reviewed the first four issues of She, The Way of the Warrior on our mini-episode, and that caught the attention of She's creator, who had a long history being featured in Wizard Magazine himself. So it is our great pleasure to welcome to the show, Billy Tucci. How's it going? It's going great, Adam. Thank you for having me. I think I, the first time I saw, you know, the Wizard Podcast Guide to Comics and then your Twitter page, I'm like, oh, I love these guys. <laughs> yeah, we, we love going back in time, and you were certainly a big part of that story and that history. But I want to talk about the present real quick. Let's start off by getting an update on your She Omnibus Kickstarter campaign. How's the response been to that, and what stage are you at right now? I got to tell you, it's been phenomenal. We launched on Kickstarter and Indiegogo afterwards. And the campaign is now in demand on Indiegogo. So how Indiegogo works is that once the campaign ends after 30 days or so, it remains in demand, which is like a store almost. It's just been gangbusters. I think the book is now we're we're well over two hundred and sixty thousand dollars that we've brought in on the book. It's we've expanded it to Marvel size, omnibus size, Marvel size, oversized. It's been expanded from the original 462 pages to 500 pages now. <laughs> so just, yeah, just lots of extras. And I did, we got the, the first set of proofs in on Monday. And there were some of the pages didn't reproduce well enough that we weren't happy with. Actually, a lot of them did because these files were corrupt. These files are 25 years old. Right. The technology's not there to like to reopen SideQuest discs and thing crazy things like that. <laughs> and even at the stage of what what the EPSs were and the lettering fonts were back in the day, we just couldn't open them. So we decided to scan in all the original pages, as a lot of people do, and then play with them in Photoshop and all. And believe it or not, the ones with the really in-depth computer coloring and stuff. And you guys had touched on it that the first two issues were done were hand colored. Then we got into the computer coloring, which put, brought it to a whole nother level. But those pages are so tough to scan in i eventually got together with mindy lopkin our designer and we just basically broke down and did a whole bunch of detective work to unlock these old files so i'm happy to say that now we've replaced it's got to be 100 pages at least with the original digital files wow. original digital color and lettering files and then mindy re-lettered two issues and uh, that's all done this week. So right now she's finishing up the lettering and we got a big giant physical proof. I think issue number 10, she's re-lettering issue number 10 and resizing issue number 10 because she had sized this entire 500 page comic. And then I was on Nearman Collectibles and Omar was like, you should go Marvel size. And I'm like, well, that's a great idea. Why don't I go Marvel size? And then we did a stretch goal <laughs> that if we hit a certain, if we hit 100,000, we're going to go Marvel size. <laughs> and we did it. But poor Mindy, what I didn't know or she didn't know is that the Marvel size is not quite just upping a comic book size. The dimensions are a lot different. So she had to go in and resize 500 pages one by one to get them from standard comic book size to the Marvel size. And she was not happy. But the, the good news is, is that by Monday, we put the book back in for the second proof. 
I think the only physical proof I'm going to need is the cover, and we give the go-ahead to go printing uh, next week. Wow, very, very exciting for the fans and for you to see it in that format. Yes, and I'm so excited, and to be honest with you, I wasn't sure because it's such an expensive endeavor, because we're really going top shelf with everything. A real premium formatted book, and our I think our printing bill right now, the estimate is over $45,000 just to print it, and then we're going to ship everything United States Postal Service priority, so that's another, like, I don't know how many thousands... To- Thirty, forty thousand dollars to ship this. You know, this book weighs seven pounds or more, something like that, something crazy like that. But it's fun, and we were just really surprised that people just came and reacted the way they did. And I guess it does have that real touch of nostalgia. And I'd love to talk to you about the podcast that I listened to yesterday because it was yeah. so fun. Because Adam, I had no idea what I was doing. None of us did. None of us had ever done a comic book except for I had, you know, inkers like Michael Bear and Jimmy Pomiati came in to ink, but they too had never self-published a comic. So it was. This really was a trial by error in a way. But the book just kept getting more successful with every issue. Like every single issue, we kept building on to the last one. So there was a lot of pressure, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, let's talk about that a little bit, about that learning process, about building up to that. Did it just seem like a good business move because comics were making lots of money? Or was it a purely creative endeavor for you? I loved comics growing up. I loved Werewolf by Night. I loved the Sergeant Rocks. I loved Our Army at War. You know, I I would buy the Spider. Spider-Man, the occasional Spider-Man and, and Batman books like that. But I was really into the horror stuff and the war stuff. Ah. You know, weird war tales, all that. I just I just gobbled it all. Up. Sergeant Rock was my favorite. Then, believe it or not, as I started to get better progress as an artist in middle school, you know, and, and that seems to be the time where people that are really into art, they start to kind of pull away from the other kids. You know, kind of elementary school or when kids are like five, six, seven years old, we all kind of draw the same, it seems. You know, you could look at the, the arts of, of a kindergartner and the, they all look the same. But the more, I guess, the more passion you have about it, and I'm sure there is some degree of talent that you may see things a little different than other people, the better I got at comics, the more I moved away from comics. Because I was a huge fan of Joe Kubert, you know, Walter Simonson, George Perez, John Romita, you know, and I would look at this art and I'm like, oh my God, I could never do this. I can't do this. And I got really intimidated by it. So I really moved away from comics and then, you know, thought I was going to be a professional hockey player. Not really, but (laughs) hockey became my passion. And then dirt bikes, I got into that. And I would still draw and be in art classes and all. But then in high school, I really got back into comics. I remember Dave Stevens came out with The Rocketeer. Oh, yeah. And I was just blown away by that. And then I'm in college, and when Xenozoic Tales came out, and someone brought that in. It was Mark Schultz's work. And I think it's 1987. And still, like, oh, my God, this is what comic books look like now? I'll never be able to do this. I was going to school for fashion illustration, believe it or not, and design. So then someone the next year brought in Amazing Spider-Man number 300. And he brought it in, and I looked at it, and he showed it to us all, and I was just blown away by Todd McFarlane's artwork. And the reason why was that it was so unconventional, that he was not the draftsman of a Mark Schultz or a Joe Kubert or a John Romita. You know, he didn't have that that classically trained art style. Now, I'm going to school for illustration, but it just liberated something inside of me that, wow, look how exciting this is, and how energetic it is, and how different it is, and it almost seems like he doesn't give a crap. He just wants to tell Frank Miller, too. Frank Miller was, you know, forgive me for excusing Frank Miller. Him and Daredevil, that was my favorite. But when I saw the Todd McFarlane's Amazing Spider-Man number 300, 
100. And this was a few weeks after it came out. Again, it just inspired me. So I remember going down to the store to, uh, I think it was called Manhattan Comics on 23rd Street. And I went down there in New York City. I was living in New York City. I was going to the Fashion Institute of Technology. And I think that book was $10. (laughs) Oh, wow. Already. <laughs> number three, I was like, oh, I can't. And he goes, well, we have number three, 301 right here. And that's a, what, buck 25 it was, whatever. I'm like, oh, I'll take that one. <laughs> and that was 301, which with a very similar cover, if you remember. Yeah. And that just set me into like, I can do this too. That I, you know, and so then my dream from 1988 to 1990 was, I want to work for Marvel Comics. I can do this. And John Tartaglioni, who's a longtime inker at Marvel, great artist. He was my best friend's dad. And he really took me under his wing. And and my professors would tell me, Billy, you have to draw comics. Look at this book. She brought in the Pander Brothers, Grendel, the Christina Spar story. And I was blown away by that because it had a fashion style similar to mine with the brushwork and all. And I was like, wow, okay, this this is great. I want to do this. But then I loved, who's this Matt Wagner guy doing his own story? So wait a minute, this is his own create. He owns this? And they're like, yeah. So I was kind of like, the dream, of course, is to draw X-Men, you know, be the next Jim Lee. But then there was something inside of me that I just gravitated again back towards, you know, Xenozoic Tales was a big thing for me that, you know, Grendel was really had a huge impact on me. Mouse came out, you know, and, and just loving that. And so I sort of developed a story, she in my head, but it wasn't called she. It was originally it was called Ran. It was a male character, and Ran means rebellion in Japanese. The Kurosawa film inspired me. Around 1990, I came up with this character. It was a male character. But as I was doing fashion illustration and all, I'm like, you know what? I think this should be a female character. I love this Christina Spar character in the Grendel series. Why don't I make it a female character? So then, as you posted on Twitter, I went through all these... Tr- I was following the trends, you know? I think you said it was a cross between Domino and another character. Psylocke, yeah. <laughs> yeah, looking at it now, and I'm sure subconsciously I was doing that, because that was everywhere, all that work. And the, and she had so little costume and all. So then she went, you know, Katana. Okay, Katana's a cool name. Duh. Then I walked to a comic shop, and I, you know, talking to someone in the shop, like, well, there's a DC character called Katana. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm like, oh, okay. So I don't know. What's a cool, what's a name similar to that? And they're like, how about Katara? And then I'm, okay, Katara is a cool name. And then I'm like, that's kind of stupid. <laughs> and then, of course, I settled on, you know, she. Actually went back to Ran again, but I'm like, that really doesn't have anything to do with the story. And I was with a friend of mine from college who's a, she's a first generation Japanese American. And we were talking, to, I was going through all these books, you know, going through kanji and looking at kanjis. And, and then I saw she. I'm like, she, wow, that's, isn't that funny with the whole double entendre and all and and she meant death and that's kind of just started the whole thing that it's actually masahiro rashi who is the the antagonist in in the book she was his calling card is like he would leave a a coin inscribed with the she symbol on his victims that he rubbed out working for the mob sort of thing and and then i just developed this modern day samurai story and the more i got into history and i learned about the sohai warriors which were the warrior monks of medieval japan who became yamabushi and many of them weren't monks at all actually they just shaved their heads and they were ordained priests but they had wives and children and things like that and it just the story really just kind of took a life of its own and i remember going around to other publishers to see if they would publish it. All the while, Adam, I'm still wanting to draw for Marvel. I'm doing X-Men sample pages and things like that. But there was just something nagging me to do my own comic, but I felt it was impossible to do. So I remember now it was San Diego Comic-Con 1993. I was out of college of two years. I was online with everyone else showing my portfolio and I got rejected by everyone. 
DC Comics actually liked my stuff and offered me something in an annual, but asked me to ape Jim Lee. Uh. And they would send me all the samples. They would send me everything. You know, they would send me pages that Jim was working on. Jim's face is all this. And now, first of all, I could never be Jim Lee. And secondly, I don't want to be Jim Lee. You know, Jim Lee's Jim Lee. He's fantastic. He's an amazing, you know, draftsman. And I'm like, I can't do this. I'm not going to do that. So I was a little dejected. And then I went into small press. And I, you know, I had no money, Adam. I had nothing. <laughs> I was just like all my savings I, I had, I spent to go to Comic-Con in San Diego. So then I was, uh, I was walked through small press. And then I met this guy. And he was sitting at a six foot long table. He was very energetic. And he was a Jersey guy. And he was sitting there with his artist and his colorist. And that was Brian Polito. And Brian had this evil Ernie book. And I was talking to Brian and he and I just hit it off. And we were laughing. And just I was I, I spent maybe a good hour at his table. He offered me a pinup in a book that was coming out next year, which ended up being the Lady Death swimsuit issue. And this is, I think, August 1993. And I'm like, so this is all you? He's like, Yeah. You know, I did this is Lady, you know, this, and I have a new book. He didn't say Lady Death. He goes, I have a new book coming out next in 1994. And, you know, I'm just gonna go for it. I'm doing this for me, and I love comics. And you seem like that too. And, and he's looking at my samples and he's like, what is this? And I'm like, well, this is my own story. He's like, well, why don't you do your own book? I did mine. So I got home and I remember I, but I still, I'm like, I can't do this. I'm not this guy. He's a force of nature, this guy. <laughs> and then I'm sitting, I remember that I was on the plane. It wasn't very crowded. And I went up to the uh, overhead luggage and I brought down my portfolio and I went through my book with this, she, with the first 12 pages of She, Way of the Warrior. And I said, you know what? F*** these people. F*** Marvel. F*** DC. I can do this. And I came home and I told my, my girlfriend, who's my wife today, and I told her about it. And she's like, you can do that. And she's the one who said, you're a force of nature. That's I refer to Brian Polito as like, you could do anything. You put your mind, never seen anyone get so focused on something and is able to accomplish it than you. You can do this. And that's what I went. I had no idea, Adam, about how to make a comic book. I had no idea how the stores obtained the comics. I had no idea about printing. I had no idea about color separation, which was a thing back then. Lettering, all this. And I just took a crash course and I put this book together. I met some pretty nefarious chaps who wanted to partner with me and then try to steal my property. And I was luckily I got away from them. I, I could tell the whole story, but it was such a tumultuous fall because, and I'll get back a little bit and forgive me for, for jumping around. I hadn't really thought about this in a long time, but once I got back from San Diego, and I was ejected and I'm like you know what I'm going to make this a creator own book there was a New York Comic Con I think in October that year or September and I had met Everett Hartsoe who had uh, London Night Studios with a character called Razor he's like yeah you could do a 12 page story for me I don't really have a lot of money to pay you but you can do it I'm like okay fine so that's when I started working on that story but in the meantime I had my she story and I would go to publishers and I was turned down by everyone and one person who's a, a, a friend of mine today is Adam Post and I, I thank Adam Post every day for turning me down down, but he had a company called Triumphant Comics, and I went to him, and I saw he had this big studio, and they had put out all these comics, and he's going through, he's like, yeah, this is pretty good, but Billy, I gotta pass on it, because I gotta be honest with you, girl books don't sell. <laughs> and that's when I'm like, you know what, now I'm gonna publish myself. Now how do I learn, how do I publish a comic book? And I just took, I just literally asked everyone I could, I went to the library, I spoke to retailers, I spoke to everybody, and then I remember I, I contacted Diamond Comic Distributors with this company behind me, and we're, we're this new comic crusade comics 
or Empire Comics, it was called at the time. Empire Comics, this new comic book company out of New York City, and blah, blah, blah. This is a new book. This is going to be the next big hit book. And meanwhile, I'm doing this in my one-bedroom apartment <laughs> where I'm six months behind my rent, and my girlfriend's writing up all the thing as marketing director for Empire Publications, Deborah Steffens, and they seem to like it. Diamond embraced it. Heroes World instead of New Jersey, and Capital City was another. And they all accepted it. So I made up an ad. I put together the ad, you know, all just learning things from art school and just winging it. And I submitted it and the orders, we had a total of when, when it hit, it, it was in the January previews for, for March release and it hit in previews and a month or two later, whenever it was, we ended up getting 37,000 pre-orders. Wow. And I'm like, oh my God. So I go to my partners and I'm like, we've got these orders and Diamond would not release the orders. That was another 20,000. So we had 17,000 orders for this comic book already. And I remember going to my partners and I said, okay, but they're not going to release the numbers for this comic book. You have to pay that ad. You never paid the ad for D Diamond. It was $4,000, the ad, I think it was, for she. We already made 17000 and that's without the big company's orders coming in. And the guy who was my partner looked at me and said, Billy, if you think I'm going to spend $4,000 to advertise a comic book, you're out of your f***ing mind. <laughs> now, this is after he knew how much it was going to cost for these ads. And that's when I left. I just left. I just walked out because I was working at their offices, but I was drawing my pages, and I was basically at their front desk as a glorified secretary for them. Then they went after me saying that they own the character or they want 50% of the character and all this. And thankfully, my wife's aunt worked for a huge lawyer in New York City. And then he just straightened it all out. But here's the thing. Now, Diamond would not release the numbers because I didn't have $2,500 to pay for the Diamond ad. And then I remember Diamond is saying, my rep is like, well, Billy, listen, we'll just cancel it. And then you can resolicit it in six months. And I'm like, no, the time is now. I know this book is going to hit. Lady Death hadn't hit yet. You know, Vampirella came out a few weeks after mine. And I, w I had no idea about Lady Death. I'm like, no, this is the time. The time is now now and i went to my friends and i said i'll give you 20 percent on your dollar i need to raise 2500 dollars and my friends gave me money 100 bucks here 500 dollars there you know things like that and i was able to raise it 2500 dollars oh that's what friends are for yep i paid diamond they released the numbers to me and the numbers were the total 37,000, and that's like 37,000 dollars yeah. So now here's the interesting part. They're not going to give you that money yet. You know, they don't pay you that money yet. But I need to get this book published. But I had no money to get this book printed. So I'm at my color separator. So I met through another family friend out on Long Island. And they were going to do it for me for because my enthusiasm was contagious. And they looked at the pages and they liked these pages. So they're like, all right, Billy, I see you're going to have $37,000 coming in. You could pay us in a month after you get paid from Diamond. Wow. You know, so I'm like, oh, thank you. Because Diamond won't pay you until the books get released. Until you deliver that book, you don't get paid back then. And then I'm sitting there. And there's a very nice gentleman who's there to getting his comics color separations done. And he's like, this is really interesting. What is this? And I'm like, oh, this is my, my comic book, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's one issue, you know, and it, it's a modern day samurai story. It's this female warrior, you know, it's called She, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, but I got to get this book printed. I don't have any money for it. And he goes, you know what? Let me make a call for you. I'm going to call my printer and I'm going to have them print this book for you because I like you and I believe in you. And that man was Fred Pierce, who was president of Valiant Comics. Oh, that's that's great. And he later went on to work at Wizard. Yep. He ends up calling Sparta Printing. So I got this kid here. I'm vouching for him personally. If he doesn't pay for whatever this print run was, 10 grand or something like that, I will pay for it personally out of my own pocket. So Sparta Printing printed my book for nothing. And again, like I said, Adam, I am flat broke. 
I, I, like I said, I'm six months behind my rent. I'm eating oodles of noodles. You are a force of nature. You're just pushing through all the barriers. You have to. That's what you have. If you want something, you have to do it, but positively. You know, you need that positive energy to go through with you. And that's how comics were back then in the, in the mid nineties. There was this great sense of positive energy going on. You know, you see, you see what Jim was doing with Wildcats and Mark Silvestri was doing with Cyber Force. And, and, and of course, Todd would spawn that these guys said, the hell with you, Marvel. We're going to do our own books and Rob. You know, Rob is just a, a constant, never-ending ball of energy still to this day. And then you had, like I said, the guys we called, you know, the good guys back then. You know, you had, you know, Matt Wagner, you know, the more quiet guys. You know, Mark Schultz, Matt Wagner. Then Jeff Smith came out with Bone, Yeah. you know, and, and Terry Moore with Strangers in Paradise. And it was just this wonderful, wonderful time. And so the book hit. And Adam, I got to tell you, the book was returnable because I had said, it's going to have a glow-in-the-dark cover. Adam, I had no idea how to make a glow-in-the-dark cover. <laughs> Right. I just said because because I was talking to my rep at Dimes, like, well, you need something cool. You need, you know, the, everyone's doing these foil covers, die cut covers for you to compete with them. You need to have something cool. And I'm like, I always love, you know, I'm a monster kid. So I always love glow in the dark stuff, you know, it's glow in the dark skeletons and fun stuff like that. And so I'm like, I have a glow in the dark. It's like, that's a great idea. There was that one glow in dark Ghost Rider cover that Marvel did. And then yeah. they closed glow in the dark ink because it came from China in, in North America. So no one was doing glow in the dark ink because all the toxic materials. <laughs> oh, wow. So I couldn't do a glow in the dark cover. So I had to say it's not having a glow in the dark cover. So the book was returnable. So I, I just remember the book came out and there was such crazy things that happened. Like I didn't have a car. So my mother said I could use her car and I was driving her car into FedEx to get the files to the printer so I can get it out by the end of March. The film, huge pieces of film. It was probably a four foot by five foot box about two inches tall and there was just the, all the flat film for the books to be printed on were in these in this giant flat file so of course the FedEx closed at 7 where I lived I had to drive into Manhattan to get to the 9 o'clock FedEx because that closed at 9 to get these files in it was my mom's car and that broke down I had to call a friend of mine who I think it was Johnny Tartaglione John my, my best friend drove in from Long Island met me in Queens we got in the car we just made it to FedEx on time got the film in and got it all sent the separations got it all sent to Sparta to get it printed. Yeah, you had to have the, the warrior spirit just to get all that done. That you is had wild. To. And holy crap, so that book hits it's returnable. The first week I get two or three boxes of she about 900 returns because the book didn't have the glow in the dark cover on it. But within the next day of me receiving those books, I got reorders for another 5,000 comics. Oh. Within three weeks, the reorders were over 147,000. This book just exploded. And I'm like, I only made 50,000 copies of this book. <laughs> and that was another thing, because when I called Sparta and they said, well, okay, we see we see you have orders for 37,000. We'll print you 40,000. There may be a few overruns. I'm like, no, let's do 50,000. And she's like, what? I'm, I'm doing this for you for free. And I'm like, well, how much would it cost for another 10000 at this print run? And she's like, ah, probably like 700 bucks. I'm like, I promise you I'll pay you this. <laughs> that extra $700. She's like, okay, you know, Bill, I like you. Okay, fine. Let's do another 1000 So needless to say, I never hit the 147000 We probably shipped about 47,000 books. And I kept another 3000 for shows and for me to have. And retailers started calling me and bringing books to the retailers and all. And it was just an astonishing, astonishing time. And then what I did, here's another thing I did, is that I knew... Adam, this book was going to be big. I just felt it in my heart that it was going to be a successful book. So normally when you publish a book for say, say issue number one is for March, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to offer issue number two for April, right? 
Or if it's a bi-monthly, like a lot of independents did, you'll do it for May. And the thing is, your first book numbers, say they're at a 1,000. Your next issue number two usually drops off by half for the second issue. I waited, Adam, until she was in the stands for people to order issue number two. So I'm talking to my rep, and I'm like, he's like, okay, Billy, I see you. You're going to go bi-monthly. We have your, your solicitation that you wrote. I said, listen, hold it off to the June orders. Put it in the June previews, because I want this book on the stands when people go to order issue number two. And then our numbers went from 37,000 to issue number one to 80,000 for issue number two. And then it just kept growing from there. And it was just crazy. And it was, and they're like, wow, that's the most brilliant business plan I I ever heard of. I'm like, it just seems kind of common sense. Yeah. They got to see, oh, I like this. I want more. Oh, it's not available yet. We'll order it. People want it. Yep. And I think it was me just not really knowing what the hell I was doing. That's why I did it that way. That is quite a story. And I just love the positivity of it all. We like you, Billy. We like you. Yeah. We're going to help yeah. you Yeah, and I was earnest, too. You know, I was excited, but I, I just love this. It, it was, again, it was the most terrifying yet exhilarating time of my life. Well, let, let's talk about that. Speaking of the exhilaration of getting the book out, then there's the reaction to the book itself. And like you have mentioned and you indicated, you have heard our recent review of those early issues of She. I, I was coming in as someone who had never read the book. My guest on that episode had read it back in the day, had been collecting it, and we had obviously our opinions, you know, a comic book readers, like, we, we like to speculate. It looks like this. This must have been what was going on. But how far off the mark were we when it came to, in particular, there was one mention of some photo referencing going on. Was that a common practice for you and your art? Yeah, of course. Well, so so going back is, is when I wrote the first draft of She, which was like a script, Peter Gutierrez, a friend of mine who became my writing partner, Peter really gave it a whole nother dimension to the, to the story. He really, he just transformed the whole character and all and, and the, the writing and, and we just had so much fun writing this together when it comes to the drawing all those people in that comic it, all the faces and stuff the reason why I would go more heavy photo reference and looking at a drawing I would take Polaroids of them they're all my friends and my friends dads and stuff oh. and they all wanted to be in the comic book my father-in-law's in it you know so I used a lot of that <laughs> I have a box of maybe hundreds of Polaroids and I was able to draw looking at now when you're drawing the action scene and stuff you're just winging it. You're just drawing it. Gesture drawings. And I have, you know, Debbie posing. Bend over here, honey. You know, my poor <laughs> wife with the, with the positions I put her into. And not in a good way, if you get my gist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not a way that she's happy. And, uh, but then, yeah, like the photo reference, I'm lo- I was able to look at reference to draw. And then I really want to work hard because I want, you know, Joe LaBianca is the cop. I really want it to look like Joe LaBianca, Mr. LaBianca. I wanted to look like him. So that's what I was doing. I mean, I killed Jeff Smith in the book. I killed uh, <laughs> Vincent Zerullo, who is, you know, head of Metropolis. Comics and you know auctions. I killed oh, my friend Garrett Chin. All the people that die are all my friends. So yeah, there was that that I would use the photo reference. Women were easier for me to draw in a way, and my wife posed for a lot of that. Yeah, I just I would pinned up all in front of my art table were just dozens of Polaroids, and then I'd pull the Polaroid down and I'd look at it real in depth, you know, and yeah. and draw it. Yeah, and then the samurai images. I'm looking at woodblock prints, you know, to right. draw the samurai. And when you draw a samurai with armor and stuff, it helps cover up a lot of things that you may mess. <laughs> but I use my fashion background to do all the gesture lines. And I think what might have made it look different and made it successful was it really didn't look like anything out there. You know, I remember when I got rejected by Marvel, you know, uh, they were like, well, this isn't the Marvel style of drawing. And with DC is like, this isn't a DC face. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? You have Graham Nolan drawing one type of face and then you have John Byrne drawing another type of face. What do you what do you mean? Where, where are we going with this? So, yeah, you guys were totally spot on. Even with the scripting, you guys read one line and my wife is watching 
watching this and she's listening. I can even call her and bring her up here. Uh-huh. <laughs> Cause she's like, that was by design because there was a part where you talk about the police officer, the thing with the child. Oh yes. Remember she's on the rooftop and she sees this child because what ha- in issue number four is when she's drafted into this war and she's sent on this mission to kill this man, to regain mm-hmm. her family's honor. So she's basically a soldier in a war. She, you know, she didn't want to do this. She's, she's been trained by her grandfather and the so high, the so high order of warrior monks to do this, to regain their honor. And she's not really ready for this at all. So that scene you're talking about with the child just stops her. And I guess yeah, I was totally influenced by all that stuff. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. We weren't uh, talking too far out of turn. Yeah. In my early twenties, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm out of fresh out of art school. You know, let's say that you talk about Patrick Nagel. God, I love Patrick Nagel. I had that same print on my wall. Yeah. You know, I love Duran Duran, the Rio cover. We even made an homage cover on She Senryaku number one, which is totally done in the Nagel style. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Right. I mean, so what happens is that there's that big rooftop battle in issue number three and four, that big battle where she slaughters a lot of Arashi's men. Mm-hmm. But issue number five is when Arashi then holds a memorial service for the, all those slain. And you see the widows and the children of these men, mobsters, who cares, that she killed in battle, that she fought with and killed. And then she just breaks down because she sees these kids. And she's like, what have I done? And she basically just abandons the whole thing. But now it's too late because Arashi wants revenge. Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask, because obviously I didn't read on past, you know, the the first four issues, and yet in an interview with Wizard at one point, you were quoted saying, you know, she hasn't killed anyone since issue three. You know, so, so it seems like that was a conscious character arc and decision that you had in mind. Yeah, she doesn't until issue number 12 when, when her and Masahiro Arashi have to fight together against Arashi's men because Arashi's men find the box full she coins and thinks that he's the so-called she killer and i never thought of it i don't know if it was you brought it up about well it's called the she killings but she does mean death (laughs) the death (laughs) killings it was chris but it was because the kanji would be on the walls if you remember she beheaded that guy in the second issue and with his blood or with his head whatever and put the she kanji over it because she was trying to instill fear into him and his men and she ended up doing it she ended up doing it but the thing is is at the end chris said well at the end she beats arashi and then he lets her go. That's not true. That's not what happened. Okay. At the end of issue 12, and spoiler alert, because I do have an omnibus out, but oh well. Arashi, she goes all this way. Her whole life has been devoted to fighting and killing this man and destroying his empire, destroying his whole world for what he did to her, that he destroyed her life. He beats her. He defeats her. Because as you said, he is a badass, this guy. And yeah. she's a five foot six, 120 pound woman. He's been training. He's in his 40s his whole life as a swordsman and he's and as a killer and things like that. And he beats her. But then there's a real poetic moment. It deals with cherry blossoms and all. And then he sees what he's done to this woman, that he's responsible for why she's here. He's responsible for the death of all these men because there's this big battle up in Arashiyama, which Arashiyama is this modern building in midtown Manhattan. And he's built this replica of, of, a, of a Meiji castle atop it. And they fight within the gardens there. It's really cool. It'd be a great movie. Like I said, I wrote it as I thought of it as a movie first. Yeah. And he lets her go. And like, I'm giving you a second chance on life. I'm giving you this chance. Do better with your life. Don't follow this bloody path. 
Yeah, it, it, I think it's it's that type of plotting and scripting. You know, it, it's you were very adamant as well from the beginning. And now that you've given us the timeline that you actually predated, you know, Lady Death and those other books that came out in the bad girl genre. Well, L- Lady Death came out. No, Lady Death came out a month before she. Oh, just a month. Okay. Yeah, it did. Uh, so, but I had no. He, Brian didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what he was doing. But I think the success of those books that Lady Death had the chromium cover, it blew out. I think I'm just lucky to be here right now. I think because Brian only made 50,000 copies of that Lady Death and that sold out. And then they saw this book and I think, and people started buying it. People liked it. I think they, they didn't want to miss out on the opportunity. I think that's why I'm here talking to you. Because then, you know, Vampirella came out the month, uh, uh, three, two weeks later uh, or a week later after she came out. Okay. And, and I think that whole, that, that triptych of characters really gave the, the industry a, another nice kick in the ass because remember things were waning back then even the image books were waning marvel and dc were waning marvel's marching towards bankruptcy within two years so you know the the death of superman novelty had faded so i think the the whole thing and then the monarch bad girls i think that that was you know it was great certainly great for me well, yeah, yeah, because that's what I was going to say. You, you kind of have the label forced upon you, and you would you would literally say she's not a bad girl. That's not really, you know. But, like, how much do you think she, it, based on just the character design of an attractive female who wasn't wearing pants, <laughs> benefited just the sales because of the trend of that era? Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was never against the bad girls, you know. <laughs> I was never like, you know, I was never like, she's not a bad girl. I'm like, I would say, I think I said, you know, she's not a bad girl. She's just drawn that way. I think I used <laughs> that line from uh, Roger Rabbit. Uh, yeah, just, I was having fun with it. Who cares? You know, I don't. Yeah. I, you know, I don't care what people say. I still. Who cares about labels and all? Yeah, it's just and like you said. It seemed like the works was speaking for itself because Wizard was very clear about always denoting she that it stood apart from the other female-led books that did seem a little bit more focused just on the anatomy and everything else like but i you know i've read lady death i think brian polito did great stuff with that book too that, oh, that's yeah. a lot of fun to read oh yeah god yeah i mean it's brilliant and he's got there's no f's given rock and roll yeah you know heavy metal, and, and, baby. And sh- yeah, and she's she's no victim. She's in control yep. always. I think he he within her he developed a, an amazing iconic character. Now the funny story is that about the Mark Silvestri image, the bad girls poster that they yes. did. And you got to think the first bad girls poster was I think Mark Silvestri set that up or Brad Foxhoven from Top Cow because she, Mark and I had met Mark. He was really cool to me, and uh, we're like we should do a crossover. And he's like, yeah, sure, why not? So that's we started that we were planning that crossover, and that's why we did those posters. Posters. And I remember Brad Foxhoven telling me, like, well, Mark, you know, you see Lady Death and you see Vampirella, dude. He's like, Mark made she far more endowed than Lady Death could ever imagine being. And he that picture <laughs> that Mark drew, she's pretty huge. And if you look at my she, Anna's not. She, no, she's yeah. got more of a dancer's body, you know? But but it was so fun. I'm like, well, that's good. But when we do the crossover, she really doesn't have you know, giant boobs. You know? <laughs> you know, and she doesn't wear a thong. She doesn't, you know, but but it's Mark Silvestri. So he kind of can do whatever the hell he wants. But it was awesome. And, you know, that he's my fir- the first great one to do my character. Yeah, that, that was so early on. And it seemed like that was a very big trend among these independent publishers at the time. You guys just loved playing in each other's sandboxes. You guys were just like, hey, let's do a crossover. Let's do a book together. Yeah. And, 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 and I think, again... What led to one you guys had also mentioned, too, was, again, that people were pleasantly surprised in She, because, you know, we, we are a three, you know, She is a three-time Eisner loser. I'm a 
a four-time Eisner loser, if you include the th- other three she's. I lost another Eisner. But uh, people recognize, you know, the book did well. We got great reviews from the comic. And again, a lot of them, I think they were pleasantly surprised because the expectations might have been low until they read it. But then that also led to, like, say, we ended up doing a crossover with Daredevil. How many independent people do you know before that? I don't know if anyone ever did. Did a crossover with a major Marvel comic character. And that yeah. was all of the, that was just us hanging out in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> you know some of the some of the Marvel editors and like and they're like you do you're really doing great with she I'm like I know I try I love Daredevil and I think I think they might have said we should do a she Daredevil crossover that would blow people's minds I'm like yes we should do a she Daredevil crossover <laughs> let me ask this then you know getting back to to Wizard then because you know obviously Wizard had a lot of influence back in the day with people Absolutely. my age the younger readers and obviously people in the industry took a lot of notice of what was printed there so what would you say what was your first exposure to wizard magazine just as you were getting into your comics career well i bought issue number one i have issue number one that actually that was a a great tool for me to start to learn about san diego comic-con and stuff a lot of that was due to the wizard magazine there was another short-lived one hero magazine yep hero illustrated yep yeah hero illustrated but really now the panache and then of wizard and and you know wizard was all bombastic and it was a lot of fun i mean you had some great books like you know comics value monthly which my friend Neil Hansen worked for and Neil was the one who told me to lose the circle around her eye you know because if you remember you guys posted it that you know here it's it's looking like Domino or another character I don't remember and I think subconsciously I was just looking at those characters in Wizard like yeah well she's got to have the thing on her eye and she's got to have (laughs) <laughs> you know, a thong up her butt and all this stuff. And, and even my wife's like, I don't, I don't know. And then uh, Neil Hans is like, you know, Billy, this looks really great, but drop that circle around her eye. You don't need that. That's stupid. That's image comics. <laughs> He's like, this wow. is better than image. And I, and the first cover, my friend Mark Sasso painted what was going to be the first she cover. And he had the red circle on her eye. And at the last minute, I opted not to use it, and I redrew the cross swords one, pulling in close on the book. Uh-huh. That almost gave it like a fashion magazine cover. Right. That no one was really doing close-ups like that. Yeah, that is a very impactful image. I'm sure that that's why it caught so many eyes. And you said, you know, obviously the sales were pretty strong just from being in the previous catalog for orders, mm-hmm. and the, you know, the minute people saw the imagery, they're like, okay, we're going to order this. But how much of an impact do you think your later being featured in Wizard magazine, you know, even getting a cover? in yeah. issue 59 like how how much impact did that have on the success of she from a sales perspective going oh forward? i i think i think tremendous success again they were calling it the new bad girl trend and here's she way you know at one point we had she number one and number two up in the top 10 yep and i was in the top 10 writers i think and artists it was amazing because all the sheamuses mr and mrs sheamus you know garib kenny steven they were always so nice to me they really were i think they too liked the idea of me not knowing what the hell I was doing, but learning every <laughs> issue. Like, every issue got better, I felt. I think we progressed with every... And, and even Chris Claremont told me that. He's like, I've never seen a comic from issue one, I think it's after si- issue six came out or something, from issue one to issue six, how it looks completely different. How it, you're just... You're, you're learning so much. And and, and I, I started to inspire other people, it seems, to publish their own comics, which was really cool. It, was, it really was. It was it was a wonderful time. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> But it, I'm having a hell of a lot of fun. I'll tell you what I I'll, I can tell you what I've done wrong, and and just do the opposite of that. You know, but Adam w- Wizard was really instrumental in me being here talking to you right now. 
And I know, you know, hindsight, you look back at it and people make fun of it and all, but it really was a, a watermark, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. not say the high watermark. And maybe when, when Wizard hit their high watermark, that was the high watermark of the speculative industry. But it was something everyone bought. Everyone read that mag. Every single person read it. Jeff Smith read it. You know, Terry Moore read it. Everyone got their Wizard magazine. And and you do look at you look at the price guide. You look at the articles, the contests, you know, crazy stuff like that. And again, it was a wonderful time for the comics. And I, it's it's almost like I, I wish these people today saw how exciting it was. Because remember, you had to go to the comic shop to get it unless you had a subscription. Right. You know, you got it in the mail. But we used to go to comic shops. And, you know, that was my Wednesday nights or Tuesday nights whenever the books came out. And Saturdays. You go to comic shops and you hang out and you talk and it was it was a really again there was this that you know you, you of course you have your ne'er do wells and you have your you know some villains and there's always going to be the the curmudgeons you know there of other creators but for the for the most of us we were all so engaging and inviting I felt even the guys that you know the Cuberts I met Adam and Andy Cubert you know who introduced me to their dad and I was like blah, blah, blah. you know when I met Joe Cubert Frank Frazetta I met Frank Frazetta loved me for some strange reason. <laughs> Now, would these be at conventions? Like, is that where you guys would get together most of the time? Yeah, well, yeah, at conventions. You know, you had the California contingent, and then you had the New York City contingent. And we would meet at this bar called Openers, and then it was later, t- later changed the name to Josie Wales. And we would meet there, and we would hang out there, like I said, at night. You know, Wednesday nights, you know, Friday nights, Saturday nights. We had parties. Some of them we can't, I can't repeat. Even on a podcast, <laughs> how crazy it was. But we were all, you know, we're all young. We're all making money. <laughs> you know, we weren't like the image guys. We weren't buying Vipers or anything like that. But it was such a fantastic time. And, and Garib would come down, you know, and his brothers, Kenny and Steven, would come down. And we would all just hang out, you know. And, and we had fun. We had a lot of fun. I got to meet Mike Martz. I played touch football with Wizard. You know, they had <laughs> touch football on Saturdays. The Wizard guys would play. And I'd come up there from Queens and play football with them. And, you know, it, it was it was fun because we're all in our 20s it was such a a new and exciting time yeah i'm curious for you because you know obviously you mentioned image and they were kind of like the west coast you know kind of like the hollywood of comics right they were doing like the big thing and big bucks and everything like that you know but it felt like you and you know jimmy palmiotti joe casada like you guys are kind of like the east coast young guns did you notice a big difference just in output based on geography or anything like that well i don't know about output because you know something i mean you look at todd you know todd landed an issue Every every month of Spawn, Eric Larson as well. With us though, there was a lot a lot of people on the East Coast. There were very few publishers on the East Coast mm. until Jimmy and Joe did Event Comics. And but you did have Harris Comics. Brian Polito was on the West Coast at the time. But uh, oh, forgive me, twelve o'clock. Sorry. <laughs> and this stupid air raid siren. I live in this old town, and they they still think that the Russians are coming or. <laughs> Or, or a German, you know, German, you know, uh, America bombers are going to fly overhead and drop bombs. I thought that was the, the evil Ernie uh, alarm. You mentioned Brian Polito. I thought evil Ernie's the, uh, on the attack. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but that's another thing with the East Coast. And, and again, I want to say a, a thank you to Wizard Magazine because I think due to their support for me, and maybe it was because the books were doing well, but... I then got to meet all the image guys and become friends with them. I got to meet George Perez and become friends with him. I got to meet all these Marvel editors and the publishers because of Wizard, because everyone knew who I was. But here's the cool thing, Adam. I became friends with John Romita Jr. and all these editors and stuff and and Mark Silvestri and Jim Lee because I didn't need anything from them. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you imagine you're a Jim Lee and you go to a comic convention or you go to a bar, you know, or you're a big time Marvel. You're Ralph Macchio, you know, from Marvel Comics. All these freelancers hit you up for work because I've seen it happen. With me, I was doing just fine. In many cases, outselling a lot of their books. Mm-hmm. You know, so I didn't need them. So I became friends with them as just us as friends. We'd go to baseball games, basketball games, hockey games. You know, we would just do things, like I said, as friends. Play touch football, you know, wiffle ball. Fun. So I got to know these other like-minded creative people. We were making a living creating at them. You know, we were li- making a living doing what we loved. And that was also at the time that all of us got into comics because we loved comics. You know, I don't think it's the same today. I think a lot of the, the a lot of this new blood coming in, they not only never read comics, but I don't think they particularly like comics. Yeah, it's it's the stepping stone to a movie. You right. basically put your storyboards in a comic, get it published, and then studios, oh, it's a comic book property? Okay, now I'm interested. Yeah. Yes, yes. And I'm going to give you a little secret here. Yeah. I did not write She as a movie script. Oh, okay. I was dealing with producers. Now people, producers are contacting me. And I just had to tell this little white lie because I wanted to write the screenplay. <laughs> so I put that in there so they think, oh, this kid started off as a screenplay. Let's instead of paying someone else to write it, I wanted to write there it. There you go. Okay. So it, was, it, was, it was all on legal pad. <laughs> and then on my friend's Apple II computer, we started writing the script. <laughs> I wrote the script. Speaking of which, then, Billy, so I, I was at San Diego Comic-Con in 1997. That was, like, my first big con I ever went to. And I remember during this time, obviously, a she movie was always being rumored. Tia Carrere was a guest at that con. I remember people giving her copies of the comic to sign because she was supposedly the front runner to play Anna, you know, in a movie adaptation. Was that ever even close to a reality? Yes, it was. Absolutely, okay. it was. Because they end up making posters that they gave out at the Cannes Film Festival for She. And I had written a script with Kevin Bernhard and Tia Carrera and her husband were both producers on it. Yeah, she was at my booth signing comics and signing posters. And I remember she called and I'm like, you know, hi, uh, this is Kevin. It was Kevin Bernhard. And I'm like, I have Tia Carrera here. I'm like, get the hell out of here. (laughs) Like, no, really? I'm like, yeah, right. And she's like, no, it's really me. (laughs) And I'm like, no way. (laughs) So uh, she loved the project. And remember, this is right after Wayne's World came out. So she was super hot and she is the sweetest person in the world and she has to be one of the most beautiful humans I've ever seen in my life, in real life, as, uh-huh. you know, just this spirit about her. She just had this thing about her, like Gal Gadot. I, I was fortunate enough to meet Gal Gadot and she was just, she's just a superstar when you meet Gal Gadot and such a warm person and an and earnest person and Tia's a lot like that too. And then we went through some script changes and started bringing in these other producers. I'm not going to mention their names. I will tell you, though, in person when I see you. Okay. And then Franchise started making Battlefield Earth and all these movies that I did not like at all. And I remember going to the Battlefield Earth premiere, and then we had a big blowout in their offices because they wanted to to bring this other producer on who wanted – he wasn't going to write it, and he's a screenwriter and a producer. He's very involved in comic films, and he was just a dickhead. And he was like, well, I wouldn't be writing this anyway. I have one of my writers, and she just wrote this wonderful Wonder Woman spec script, and she's the one going to be writing it. And, and, and we just had this big round around. I remember telling them, like, you know, not only am I – I'm not crazy that your movies – 
don't do well at the box office. A lot of the franchise films, they were doing Get Carter and a bunch of these films. They did a whole nine yards, which I thought was great, but they did Battlefield Earth. And I said, but the majority of them really suck. <laughs> they all suck. And then, that, oh, and I started this whole thing. And then I remember one of the producers like, well, we didn't do that bad on Get Carter. We didn't do that bad. Money <laughs> like mumbled it. She just said it. And I just had had it with him. But then, yeah, that was it. That was the beginning of the end with them. And then we had another producer, Mimi, Mimi Gitlin. And she had it for a long time and paid me a lot of money. But things didn't work out with that. And she's produced a lot of films. And I think she's just great. But I think she's gone off in a different direction doing documentaries or something. And now the film rights are free. Free and clear. Hey, everybody, you listed? You listed? Yeah. Now's and now, the time. Yeah, and, now it was, and now people... People call me again because of, of our Indiegogo's and Kickstarters that we've done. You were over $800,000 sure. in the past two years. So people seem to really like, oh, are the rights? Is she available? You know, really cool people, really cool producers who have great resumes. And I'm like, wow. So we'll see what happens with yeah, that. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Absolutely. And maybe get Tia a cameo in the film as another character. Oh, you know, gosh, just... yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because she's so great. And, and she's like, well, I wish we made that movie. I, you know, and, and I'm like, me too. It would have been. It would have been so much fun and great. And uh, what are you going to do? And I'll tell you, she is really sweet. We did uh, for my friend's birthday. He's a big Wayne's World fan. So we actually got her to do a cameo birthday greeting video for him from Tia. Oh, that's so, great. And she was like, I'm on set. I'm sorry. I wanted to do more. But here's what I'm going to do. You know, and all this stuff. So it was really nice. Yeah, she's so sweet. You know, she really is. And and, uh, and then I met, I'd say, an acquaintance with Ming-Na Wen through my friends Jeffrey Vaughn and Michael Soloff. I'm friends with her. I guess I'm kind of friends with her. I, I'm not friends, acquaintances. <laughs> but Kelly Who as well. Sure. I love Kelly Who. And they they all want to play she. <laughs> they're, they're all, all in the running. She. Okay, that's what they, you know, they're like, interested. Oh, yeah. I said, but we'll see. But now, again, I feel that today, this point in time right now, there's never been a better time to make a creator-owned comic book. Because you have so much tools available to you through the mm -hmm. internet, through web comics. You know, there are Eisner Awards now for best web comic. Yeah. And and you don't need a lot of money. You don't have to spend the money on, again, color separations and, and even printing anymore. Because you could put out a web comic and do a panel a day. Yeah, and even, even just making the connection with an artist or an inker, you know, like the writer, like whoever you need to work on your book, like you can find them online now. Whereas back in the day, you had to go to a convention again. Go down yes. Artist Alley or whoever, you know, wherever else. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I hope people actually, if you want to create your own comic, like I met a, I met someone today. How do I get into comics? Um, I, uh, not today, at the New York Comic Con this past week. I'm like, I'm, and they showed me their portfolio and like, I, well, I want to work for Marvel and DC. I'm like, why? Make your own comic. You own everything. You ever heard of Robert Kirkman? <laughs> what if Robert Kirkman had sold Walking Dead to DC for a song yeah. and a dance or something? He's a multi-millionaire now. Well, and speaking of Kirkman, you know, with, with Image Comics, they're about to celebrate their 30th anniversary of the founding, you know, next year, you know, okay. forging that path for success, showing it could be a success for so many talented, you know, creators. Were you ever approached based on just your relationship with all of them to have she distributed through like Top Cow or any of the other Image affiliated studios like Jeff Smith eventually did with Bone or? Yeah, well, we were doing so well, and, and, you know, with Crusade Comics. I know Mark had said, you know, why don't you come over to us? And, and we tried to get through image and unless all the founders agreed you're you're in and it would have been a huge thing for me but there apparently there was one founder who was did not want she to be part of image i don't know who that is i have an idea yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it worked out for me anyway yeah there was one person and the publisher at the time called me up and he was just stunned and shocked and he said i'm drinking bourbon right now as i tell you this uh. and, and it, it didn't make sense to, to us and i'm friends with two of the other image founders so i know it wasn't them one of which invited me so so it was one of the founders. Three of them I definitely know it wasn't. Okay. <laughs>
what are you going to do? You know, I'm like, yeah. ah, if this particular chap doesn't like me or I don't know if he's a little crazy or something, that's fine. Yeah. But I'm like, you know, she's really hot. We can make a lot of money. I'm uh, telling you. Know, I think it would be good for the company. And that that's because that was before they were doing everyone else's comics. Yeah. And I think they wanted me to be even a bigger part of it. Oh, you know, I not see. necessarily an owner, but I would have had a bigger studio, you know, with the Crusade comic studio. And, and we, we would have been a high profile addition, which yeah. everyone's, you know, at the time you think of it, if it's 1998, 99, yeah, why wouldn't they do that? You know, we were, we were flying high for the past four years, but who knows? What are you going to do? So let me, let me ask you this then, you know, of all the things that we've been discussing here right now, is there a question I should be asking that I'm not asking about your journey with she just in the comic book industry in general? Is there something you're most proud of that you feel like should be mentioned? Well, yeah, I, I would say that the work I'm most proud of with she, with my own creator own stuff. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm so proud right now with how the things, the books are doing now that I brought she back. It's the first issue was return of the warrior. The second one was she hiking. Now this omnibus, which goes back to the original 16 of the 80 issues of She that are out there or so. And now Sakura, the next book, which we launch on Kickstarter in January in Indiegogo. I'm so proud of this work because I think it's the best work of my career. And it's really reinvigorated that passion I had and putting together this omnibus. And that's why I loved when I first saw your Twitter handle the very first time. I love that. I'm like, oh, my God, I remember that time because you would show the first issue and pages and like, oh, man, this reminds me when I first wanted to get into comics and that's why i started following you guys and all and i hope you didn't think i was a weirdo doing that but i'm like oh, this is... <laughs> no, we're definitely flattered yeah. yeah i'm a fan too so what i'm proud about what we did now is that i've been able to progress anna so anna ishikawa is in real time 20 it's 20 years removed from when we last saw her Ah. From the way of the warrior storyline. So let's even use that timeline. So now she's a single mother raising her teenage daughter. Her warrior days are far behind her. Then something happens and she's pulled back in. And it's almost like a comic book character grows up. Yeah. And she's so beautiful, I think, in my mind. I mean, I've been, my wife, I'm not going to tell you how old she is, but we met in college 31 years ago or so. And she's never looked more beautiful to me than she does now. So why not have, you know, not every comic book female character or woman character, why do they have to be 22 years? Years old and you know yeah and smoking hot you know like looking like megan fox when megan fox looked like when she was 22 have a <laughs> have a more mature woman and you know and then we still played with it and and i think she's hot you know she's still beautiful and i mean yeah. you see kelly who i think kelly who is 53 years old 54 and she looks like she's 30 she's stunning kelly who um but we play with some things like she, at one point she's trying on the old costume and oh, she, that's great she, yeah she takes there's one image that we use of of anna pulling on her leggings from the first issue and i and i mimic that page i mirror it but she rips it her leg goes through it <laughs> because you know she's not she's not built the same way now you know and then she's got to repair the costume and she's wearing glasses you know <laughs> doing that with a needle and thread you know and then she and then she looks at herself and she's like oh no this won't do and then she takes like a like a like a skirt and she wraps it around her around her butt you know a skirt oh, that she wears. we're definitely gonna have to check that out that sounds like so much fun but i'd have to say my proudest moment has to be to have put together the shisen ryaku book, which it's basically Anna's grandfather teaching Anna about the 36 stratagems of the Chinese art of war. But I employed 30, I guess, of the biggest names in comics. I got a Frank Frazetta cover. Jim Lee did a piece. Uh, Amanda Connor did a piece. Mark Silvestri, George Perez, Jeff Smith. My goodness, uh, 
I, the list can go on and on. You know, Silvestri, so many greats do a she piece in it. And we were nominated for an Eisner. We lost it again. But I'm so proud of that book. And I'm, I'm, I'm psyched that next year we do the omnibus for that. So that's going to be a writer and artist edition. It was written by Gary Cohn. And it's just a beautiful piece of work. Again, you know, I got Frank Frazetta to do a cover for it. How many people get Frank Frazetta to do a cover? Yeah, that, that's a big one. Yeah. So it was just a wonderful experience and dealing with all these artists. I remember it when, you know, because Michael Turner had come out with Witchblade. I'm like, you got to give me Mike Turner for for this. Hit. And Mark's like, no, no, he's behind in his books. There's no way. He doesn't have time to do a, a pinup deal. <laughs> Uh, well, Billy, this has been so much fun. I'm so appreciative for your time and your enthusiasm for what we're doing here. And we're excited to be, you know, connected with you and hearing from you online and all the success you're having. And it feels like you should be proud of what you're doing now, because as your whole career, like you've said, you've just been getting better and better. So you're definitely uh, got something to be proud of there. But where can people find you these days if they want to connect with all these projects and keep an eye out? Yes, well, please. Well, first of all, if you guys don't mind following me on Twitter... And Instagram, I got my Twitter account in 2009 just so I can get at Billy Tucci. So on Twitter, I'm at Billy Tucci. But I really haven't been active on Twitter except for the past two years. So I'm growing steadily, but if you guys could give me a follow, that would be great. Also, Instagram, I'm Billy Tucci, Facebook, Billy Tucci. And then I have a, a website, which is www.billytucci.com. And you can order all of our books. It has links to our eBay store with our prints and all and other books. And you can order the books directly from us as well there. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Lots of fun. Uh, you're great, Adam. Thank you for having me. And what a brilliant idea that you guys came up on. Because on the Pop XPR YouTube channel, we were doing that. Look, you know, we should break open an old wizard to go through it and you guys are killing it with it well thank you for those kind words billy we really appreciate it so much fun having you on the show here and thank you all for taking a chance and listening to this special edition of the wizard files we're planning to get in touch with more creators who were featured in the pages of wizard magazine going forward and getting their perspective on the guide to comics for better or for worse but if this is your first chance to check out wizards the podcast guide to comics why don't you go on over to wizardscomics.com or any of your favorite podcast apps and you will be able to find our archive of over a hundred episodes yes as billy has mentioned we cover each issue of wizard magazine in depth on our main episodes but then there's so much jam-packed into those fantastic periodicals that we actually have our wizards half episodes our mini episodes where we get into more of the details talk the top 10 lists we get into the contests, and a lot of times we're reviewing comics, just as was the catalyst for this interview with Billy. You can also check out special interviews with the people who created Wizard Magazine on our ongoing series, The Wizard Files, where we've talked to all sorts of editors, writers, and other associates of the magazine that tell the behind-the-scenes tales of being the source for information in the comic book industry during that magazine's 20-year history. You can also check out our special bonus episodes we have 90s super cinema where we go in depth on a film that was made in the 90s before the huge comic book movie boom took place but also we've covered such tv series as the flash from 1990 don't forget to follow us on social media at wizards comics on twitter at wizards underscore comics on instagram you can also subscribe to our youtube page at wizards podcast where we talk comics we go through our log 
boxes. We have all sorts of fun videos over there for you to check out, including our 30th anniversary reunion roundtable, where we brought together many of the folks who created Wizard Magazine, had them reminisce, and is there more to come? You better believe it. So stay tuned, but in the meantime, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.